We'll just sit here and wait. Okay. So that's the title of the sermon today. You didn't know that. Nobody really knew that. I don't normally put that, put that out. And so um, that's why I knew, as soon as he spoke it, what, uh, that that was supposed to be a, a message for today. So uh, with that said, we are starting a new series today, and it's called Come Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, as you may know, Come Holy Spirit is actually a very ancient prayer, but it's also a prayer that was sort of popularized throughout the Vineyard Movement. It uh, goes back to the, uh, the famous Mother's Day in uh, Anaheim, California, when John Wimber had invited Lonnie Frisbee to come and speak, and um, he came up, and at the end of his message, he invited all the teens, all the youth, to come up to the front. And there were a hundred or so there that day. It was a, had a lot of uh, young people at that time. And Lonnie just basically said, Holy Spirit, come, and boy, did he. Um, and so it's been sort of part of Vineyard's DNA ever since then. And so um, it, has, it still has, I think, a lot of modern implications in terms of you know, our experiencing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, right? And so the, whole, the, the real crux of this sermon series is going to be to um, kind of tell the story of the activity of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to tell it from um, several different perspectives. We're going to look at Scripture and we're going to look at how that particular topic today would be miracles, how, what that looked like in the life of Jesus, what that's like in the life of the disciples, what that may look like in the life of the church, and then what that still looks like today. Okay, so we're going to take those four perspectives and study these uh, over the next seven weeks. <coughs> and uh, so as you can see, the title today is uh, When Miracles Happen. Now, the really cool thing is that at the end of this series, at the end of the seven weeks on the eighth week, I think is November the 3rd, if my counting was correct. November the 3rd is going to be, we're just going to call it, and I, I didn't come up with this, Chip did, but we're going to call it Miracle Sunday, all right? And what we're going to do on that Sunday is we're just going to worship, and we're just going to have a giant healing service. And so it's an opportunity for you to invite anybody that you know that needs prayer for anything. Okay? And we're just going to pray for them and, um, and see what happens. Uh, and we're going to hope and pray uh, for miracles. You know, so I would go ahead and, and put that on your calendar, put it on their calendar, make sure they're aware of it. Third. I believe the third is the first Sunday. <coughs> Okay, and we'll, we'll be talking more about that as we go through the, the series, but that's just kind of a heads up for now. So if you have spent any time studying Christian theology, or if you've just been around the church a little bit, you've probably heard of this particular doctrine or belief called cessationism, all right? And really what cessationism is, it's a viewpoint that says that all the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, such as healing, uh, speaking in tongues, prophetic revelation, that um, that only pertained to the apostolic period, 
and went away as soon as that period had passed. Okay, basically, once the Bible was sort of put together and that was the text, then the cessationists say, that's it. Okay, all this other stuff stopped. Well, to that, I have this to say. <laughs> now, I don't know if anybody knew what I said, and that's not a, um, I, I, I bent the rules a little bit there just to make a point, but normally we don't do that unless there's an interpretation. Um, but I think you get my point. You, ooh. All right. Amen to that. Well, I didn't. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> um, so we contrast this concept or this idea of cessationism with a, another C word called continuationism. And it's really just the opposite. What continuationism means is that those things continue today, right? They continued past the apostolic period. They continued into the early church. Now, if you understand church history, you'll know that there were ebbs and flows of all of those things. Some kind of went away because thinking changed for a while. Um, now, they didn't go away. It's like people just kind of stopped believing in them and stopped practicing them, right? It wasn't that God ever said, no, I'm just going to take that away for a while. No, that's not what happened. Um, one of the biggest things that happened was the... Um, the Age of Enlightenment, right? When the Age of Enlightenment came and everything was sort of boiled down to uh, scientific theory, right? If you couldn't prove it by science, it didn't exist. And that became the dominant, and that's still in play today, right? We still believe, many people still believe, if we can't touch it, taste it, see it, feel it, smell it, whatever, it doesn't exist, right? You've got to be able to prove something in order to believe in it. Well. That just flies in the face of faith, doesn't it? Right? Um, and so, really, I bring this up simply to say that our church is most definitely a continuationist church. Right? We believe that those things um, still happen. Now, we also believe wholeheartedly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we believe in spreading that gospel wherever we can. All right, so we don't look at one or the other. They've got to both be there. It's exactly what Rich was talking about, right? That there's a purpose behind this. But we also believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of power. Okay. Um, should be able to remember this because it's the password. It's 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Okay, that's Paul speaking, all right? So we understand and believe that that power is available to everybody, not necessarily all in the same manner, but that that power is available to anyone, right? And the reason it's available to anyone is for bringing more people into the kingdom of God, okay? So we believe that the miraculous can and still does happen. So I just wanted to lay that kind of as the groundwork for this. And so, as I said, we're going to look at four different perspectives. And the first one 
is we're going to look at miracles from the uh, perspective of Jesus. And one of the stories, uh, perhaps one of the more interesting and in many respects uh, confusing stories in Scripture. And that is from John's Gospel, second chapter, verses 1 through 11. So you can look at it in your Bible or uh, it's up on the screen. And this is the... Um, <coughs> As John records it, and many believe, this was the very first miracle that Jesus did. All right. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Okay? So before we kind of get into that, I just want to point a couple of things out. Um, first of all, when, when Jesus says to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's difficult to sort of say it the way that he would have said it, because this was not, he was not at all being rude to her or con condescending in any way. Said in this matter, it was more a term of endearment. Okay, so he didn't, you know, he didn't say mom, but it sort of could be interpreted that way. All right, so this is, a lot of people read that and they're like, gosh, Jesus was very sexist, wasn't he? No, he was not. Um, okay, is there anything else? Okay, so in John's Gospel, and again, if you've studied theology to any extent, you'll know that uh, John focuses on seven miracles or seven signs of Jesus. And so that's kind of the focus of his writing, is these seven miracles. This is the first one, right? This is the first miracle that Jesus did. And the whole point of this was the miracles were, were signs, or like signposts. You know, like when you travel somewhere, you look for a sign that says, turn here or whatever. Well, these were signposts to tell people that Jesus was the divine Son of God, okay? That he had come down from heaven and was now among his people. And they, you know, they were remarkable in that sense because they displayed the presence and power of God, okay? Now the thing about Jesus' miracles is that they always highlighted his nature, okay? Which was, he had a lot of compassion and a lot of love for people, right? But I think as well, they revealed his glory. They were, it's kind of like they were his credentials. You know how if you're in law enforcement, you carry a badge or 
you have some kind of credential that, say that's, that says that's who you are. Well, these, these miracles were essentially Jesus' credentials. Um, but he didn't do them for show. I mean, they were performed to help people believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Now, as I said, this is one of those miracles that's, that's really hard for a lot of people to understand. You know? And especially if you look at it in light of the very last verse in John's Gospel, which is John 21-25, all right? John 21-25 said this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a lot of miracles. Yeah? Okay. So we have so many miracles, we, we, the world couldn't hold all the books that could be written about them. So why did John pick this one? Right? I mean, you could even look at this story and say, well, is Jesus promoting alcoholism? <laughs> you know, is, is he just a big fan of partying at weddings? I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure Jesus had fun. I mean, that's just kind of goes without saying, but, you know, the short answer is no. <laughs> he's not promoting alcoholism, and I wouldn't say he's promoting even partying at weddings, okay? The longer answer is going to help, will help you understand who John is writing to and why. And as we say so often, it's always about the context. And sometimes in Scripture, you've got to dig a little deeper to understand what the context is that this refers to. And this is one of those cases. All right, so to understand this, you first of all have to know who John's audience was. All right, and a lot of times if in, you, in the front of uh, a particular gospel, depending on the type of Bible you have, there's some study notes. And oftentimes those study notes will tell you information like who was John writing to, what time period was this written, and all those kinds of things. All right, so John was actually writing to a group of Hellenistic Jews and Gentile God-fearers who lived uh, in Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is what is now Western Turkey, okay? Um, and so, in other words, these are Jews who lived in a Greco-Roman culture, all right? They weren't in Jerusalem. Their culture was more Greco-Roman. That's what they were used to. And these were also Gentiles who just had an appreciation for Judaism, for the practices of it and so forth. Okay, so that was his audience. That's who he's writing to. Very different from some of the other Gospels. For example, Matthew was writing specifically to the Jews. And if you kind of look at his Gospel, you can pick up on that based on what he's saying, right? Because he pulls a lot of the Old Testament in there and so forth. And so that's one way that you can sort of discern uh, the audience. But that's who, uh, that's who John is writing to. All right, so if you're in that culture, you would undoubtedly be familiar with stories about a Greek god named Dionysus. Now, who was Dionysus? Dionysus is the Greek god of what? Wine. Okay? So, we have the, these stories, and, and there were these stories were all over the place, and they were pretty infamous. And there's one that was actually recorded by an ancient uh, historian named Pausanias. And he recounts 
an event that happened at a particular city that had a festival every year to the Greek god Dionysus. Okay, here's what he wrote. Three pots are brought into the temple and set down empty in the presence of citizens and of any strangers who may chance to be in the country. The doors of the building are sealed by the priests themselves and by any others who may be so inclined. On the morrow, they are allowed to examine the seals, and on going into the building, they find pots filled with wine. I did not myself arrive at the time of the festival, but the most respected Elean citizens, and with them strangers also, swore that what I have said is the truth. The Andreans assert that every other year at their feast of Dionysus, wine flows of its own accord from the sanctuary. Okay, so this is one of the stories that John's audience would have undoubtedly been familiar with, right? So you have this temple to this Greek god. They bring these pots in that are empty. They seal it up so that no one can come in or out. And then the next day they open it up and look, and they're full of wine, all right? So that's one of those stories that, you know, would obviously get repeated over and over again. So why did John include this particular miracle? Well, and there's, there's probably a lot more we could unpack around that, but we don't really have the time to do it. And so what I believe is that he wanted his audience to see that the reality of Jesus replaces the legend of Dionysus, right? And secondly, I think he's sending a message to anyone who would listen, God is here. Now, do you think it's coincidental that in the Dionysus story there were three jars and in Jesus' story there were six? Yeah, I don't either. I think he was, again, proving a point of how much greater our God is than this Greek God who wasn't even real. All right, so that's, that's sort of a miracle story from Jesus' perspective. And I think, again, it's pointing back to what Rich said at the beginning, it's all about showing who God is, right? It's not about the miracle itself, it's about what the miracle proves, okay? So now let's look at a scripture from, uh, that sort of focuses on the disciples. Here we go. This is from the book of Acts. Those of you in the class may have already uh, looked at this. It's from Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. And the scripture says, and that's this week? That's next week. Next week. Ah, okay. Well, you guys can tell me then. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. All right, so... If you were looking at that word handkerchief, that's really more of a modern word. If you wanted to accurately translate this, it would probably be sweat towels. I mean, a towel that you would carry around just to regularly wipe your brow, um, you know, when you perspired. And the apron is really one of those things that kind of if you think of blacksmiths or anybody in a trade that had those heavy aprons that went around, you know, that would protect their clothing while they worked. That's similar to what we're, that's the kind of apron we're talking about, not the little frilly thing that your mom wore when she was in the kitchen cooking with pearls on. 
just like, well, if I said June Cleaver, most, most of you probably don't even know who that is. Yikes, I am old. Um, and I think that the, the, sort of the fascinating thing about this is, <laughs> is that the miracles in this text are called extraordinary miracles. Okay, now seriously. Has anybody here seen a miracle that wasn't extraordinary? Just an ordinary miracle. <laughs> That's really what we're talking about here. Just an ordinary miracle. Well, this is extraordinary, right? And it really is. I mean, I, you know, honestly, I think miracles are kind of extraordinary just by definition, but that's me. Um, there may be something in the context that I don't understand quite yet. Um, and, I, and perhaps what um, Luke is trying to emphasize here is that these are not ordinary healings, kind of like what you know, Peter and John did when they were um, earlier in the book where they're heading to, te uh, to temple for prayer. They see the man sitting by the gate beautiful. He asks for money. They say, we don't have any money, but we'll give you what you have. And he's healed. Okay. I think that's rather extraordinary. But I, I think what, what Luke may be just trying to juxtapose something like that versus something that was just like way over the top. Um, and so in this case, God is using inanimate intermediate objects in order to carry healing power from Paul to somebody else. Okay? That is different. You know, that's way different than what, anything we've seen so far. And I think the point is that, that, that this miraculous gift was not a gift that only Jesus had access to. Right? This story shows us that Paul did as well. Okay, so now this has spread from Jesus to one of his apostles or disciples. And for Paul, these miracles, as, as we've talked about, were all about evangelism. Listen to what he says in Romans 15, 18, and 19. I think I have that. Yeah. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What does it look like to fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ? Word, deed, power. It says so right, right there. Okay? All of those things need to be present, right? We got it a little, we got a little sideways if we think that all we do is go and, and just talk and proclaim the word, right? Not that there's anything bad about it. I mean, that's been, that has worked to convert, but that's not necessarily the way God intended it to be, okay? And that's what I want us to catch. Miracles never should form the center of evangelism, okay? They serve as a means to an end to evangelizing people to come to Christ. Okay, that's why they're there. Right? They're not just for show. They're not to make us feel good. 
they're not necessarily just for the healing uh, of another person, right? Although it does accomplish all of those things, okay? So now we've looked at Jesus, we've looked at the disciples. Let's look at the church. And for that, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And it says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, what I found really fascinating is, do you know what Greek word is translated in these, in, in, really throughout the New Testament? What Greek word is translated as miracles? Dunamis. It's the same word that's also translated power. Okay? Same word. And so the takeaway from this particular passage is that God has appointed the miraculous to be part of the church. Okay? I don't think it's a big leap from this to then conclude that he expects the miraculous to be happening in the church. Well, so how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen unless we go for it. Unless we pray for it. Unless we put a stake in the ground, and in our case that stake is called Miracle Sunday, and say, we're, gonna ju we're just going to go for it. We believe this, Scripture says it, we're going to believe it, and we're going to go for it, right? We talk about this all the time. How do you, in the vineyard, how do you spell faith? R-I-S-K, right? You've got to take risks. And you trust that God is going to back it up. And the thing, too, that I want to point out is that miracles are not, not necessarily the, the domain or come about simply because one person prays. I think sometimes we think of that, right? You know, that, you know, and, and, and there is some, I guess, some basis for that because we see it a lot in the scriptures, you know, where Jesus goes and he prays for someone and they're raised from the dead or healed or whatever. But I think so often, and, and you're going to see this in some of the couple of the stories that I'm going to read in a minute, it's a collective thing, right? It's the whole church coming together as a family to pray for something in particular and, and then, you know, that's when it has the potential to happen. So it's our collective prayers. It can be an individual. That's certainly true. But I think the collective prayers of the church um, can, uh, can have a big difference as well. Now, one of the questions that inevitably comes up, we may as well go ahead and deal with it, is that why is it that sometimes we can pray with great faith and nothing happens? Let's look at a, a text from Hebrews that might enlighten us a little bit. It says it, and by it, I, it means the gospel. That's the context of, of this. So in other words, the gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness to signs and wonders and various miracles by his gifts of the Holy Spirited. Now here's what I want you to focus on. Distributed according to his will. All right, that last part of the passage is what we need to remember. When we pray and we do not see the miraculous come to pass. Ultimately, it's about God and not us. It's not about what we do believe or don't believe. Remember the, te- the, the, the parable of the mustard seed? About having mustard seed-sized faith that allows you to move mountains? So if that's what it takes, if Jesus says that's what it takes to move mountains, then it really can't be something that you know, we, we, we do or don't believe that's getting in the way. Now, I think as a church family, we are all aware that we have several people in our church right now who need a miracle. And we're going to continue to pray for them, and we're going to continue to pray that a miracle happens. But if it doesn't, we're not going to stop praying. We're not going to stop praying for the miraculous to happen. Because our measuring stick in this regard has got to be God's word, not our own experience. Okay? Right? This was an issue with with John Wimber in in his church. I probably have told the story before, but he, God had told him to preach about healing. He preached about healing for something like nine months. Nobody got healed. People were leaving the church in droves. He was begging God. God, nobody is getting healed. Do, we have, do I have to keep talking about this? And what God told him was, you preach my word, not your own experience. And his word says the miraculous can happen. And so that's, that has got to be our measuring stick in all of this. That's got to be what we hold ourselves accountable to. And now, uh, in terms of today, I want to read a couple of stories. And this, is, this comes from a book called Come Holy Spirit. And it's actually kind of a companion book to this series. And really, it's nothing more than a book of testimonies about various, uh, about various subjects. And so there's probably four or five or six in each chapter. And so I've picked out a couple that I wanted to, uh, wanted to share with you just as a way to close this and uh, sort of help you understand what still happens today that involves the miraculous. So this story is called New Bones. I am not optimistic, the doctor said, looking at an MRI of Laura's right femur. Osteopenia, a precursor to osteoporosis, on top of anorexia as a teen, had caused a long stress fracture in her thigh. The doctor recommended surgery to insert a metal rod in a good chance, with a good chance, that the chronically brittle bone would break again. Laura was devastated. Looking at her broken leg on the screen, all she could see was a crippling future. She wasn't ready to commit to surgery, to decide to go on crutches for 10 weeks to see if the bone would heal on its own. Uh, No, she decided to go on crutches for 10 weeks to see if it would heal on its own. The doctor warned her that another MRI wouldn't even show if the bone was healing since slowly healing stress fractures still show up on scans for up to a year. During these weeks of waiting, Laura and her husband, Garen, 
turned to God for a miracle. The family uh, came close to her, excuse me, the church family came close to her during this painful time and added their requests. On Sundays, the prayer team laid hands on her, asking God to heal the broken bones and reverse the brittleness. During the week, the women's prayer team visited Laura at home and prayed further. Together they asked, hoped, lifted their eyes to the God who does wonderful things far beyond the ability, strength, or imagination of any person. Day and night, Laura chose to put her hope in God instead of the doctor's grim prognosis. Three weeks into this vulnerable time of waiting and prayer, Laura had a flare-up of back pain. Doctors did a bone scan suspecting that she had fractures in her spine. The results were astounding. Not only were there no fractures in her back, there was no fracture in her thigh bone either. Could it be? Did God answer their prayers asking for new bones? The orthopedic doctor took a look at the scan and couldn't believe it. I love it when doctors get confused. He had absolutely no explanation for the absence of the fracture since a bone scan would still reveal a fracture in the healing process. The scan showed a completely healthy femur. And wouldn't you know it, oh, let's see, mystified, the, doctors, the doctor pushed for an MRI. At first, insurance didn't want to cover another one so soon. Garen and Laura prayed again. Wouldn't you know it, the MRI was quickly approved. And, wouldn't you know it, the MRI results showed no sign of the fracture. Laura's doctor was dumbfounded. I love dumbfounded doctors. There was no medical explanation and no sign of any natural healing process. Laura's bone was simply brand new. The Gospels talk about Jesus being moved with compassion when he saw people in pain. Laura felt that compassion in a very tangible way through the prayers of those who gathered around her. Each person who prayed for her experienced firsthand the Jesus who still heals hurting people. As a result, Laura's future is radically changed and the entire community has a story of God's faithfulness tucked close to their hearts. And then this, is a, this one's a little bit shorter and I'm going to close with this. This one's called A Mother's Miracle. Weeks after giving birth to a healthy baby girl, Alicia was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. She had so much to live for and believed God was still in the business of miracles. So Alicia and her lifelong best friend Lauren spent the holiday season traveling to every healing service they could find. Many friends and family drew in close during this difficult time asking God to completely heal her of the cancer. The cancer continued to grow. Alicia's lungs, neck, back, liver, and brain were all being invaded. But that didn't stop them from asking for a miracle. One day, Alicia saw a scene in her mind's eye of herself as a 93-year-old woman surrounded by her grandchildren. She held on to that picture tightly, sensing God's promise of healing while undergoing the chemotherapy treatments recommended by her doctors. The new year began with a scan that showed a 25% reduction of cancer in her body, which meant that the chemo was working. The doctor said they didn't expect any further reduction. The chemo treatments from now on would be to contain the size of the current masses and limit any further spread of cancer. Alicia continued to hold on to her promise of a long life 
and care for her baby. Three weeks later, Lauren was sitting in a church, this is her best friend, listening to a sermon about healing and how God's power can heal our bodies. She began texting Alicia scriptures and truths about healing. Sitting in her own church service across town, Alicia was deeply moved by the verses her friend sent. She asked the people at that location to pray for her and ended up getting baptized right there on the spot. Meanwhile, Lauren responded to the ministry invitation at her church, asking for prayer on behalf of her friend Alicia. The very next day, Alicia had another scan. Coincidence? The results were astounding. No cancer in the brain, the neck, the back, or the liver, and only one tiny spot in her lungs. Everything was gone. God is still in the miracle business. God is still in the miracle business. Harry, you want to come up? Both of you. Okay. This is the first tag team testimony we've ever had. Um, And since they're up here, I do want to point out that this is Miss Shelley's last Sunday with us for a while. She's going back to uh, that faraway country whose name we speak not when we talk on the microphone. <laughs> for security reasons, right? But she is going to go back there, so uh, just kind of know that um, she's leaving Tuesday. Right, And so if you haven't had the chance to uh, wish her farewell or to even pray with her, um, please do so before you leave today. Um, in fact, when you're finished with your testimony, why don't you just hang around up here and then um, let people come up and they can pray for you. You can pray for them. Yeah. All right. You're free to speak. <laughs> so as I was here before the service praying, I found myself praying continually praying for rest and then I found myself praying that God would heal people with restless legs and restless minds and I thought that's strange I think that's from God um, and then when Harry came in she starts telling me her testimony uh, this week I've had restless legs for probably a year now and it's been getting worse. It used to start like at seven or eight in the evening. Now it would start like at 3.30 in the afternoon. And it doesn't sound like a big deal because it doesn't hurt, but it's misery. Feels like somebody, if you've ever had the electric shock and your leg just kind of jumps, it's that kind of feeling. Well, it was in both legs and John and I had been praying for months. We actually got healing in my left leg, but I could not get healing in the right and it was getting really severe. Um, I knew that it was associated with a spirit. I knew that it wasn't healed because there was something missing that I didn't understand. Got prayer uh, last Thursday night, and I mentioned that I need a prayer for the legs, and I think it was Shelly, it may have been Sally, got a word of knowledge that I think that the leg is not healing because you have made a vow that you'll stand on your own two feet that you will take care of yourself 
and uh, particularly in the area of finance. And that is very true. It hit home. And so we actually went through a prayer of repentance and um, went home that night. And John and I spent most of the night praying. I mean, two, two hours, probably not most of the night, two hours in the middle of the night because it was bad. You know, I'm like, this didn't work really well. The next night, I slept all night long. That hadn't happened in forever. No restless legs. I want to tell you that there's still a little something there. Don't know what it is or why, but it's definitely, it feels like something is trying to test me to see if I'm going to hold firm in faith. And I'm not worried about it because I just know that it's going to go. Anyway, that's my testimony, what God did. He gave a word to somebody else, and then he healed probably 95% of what's happened. So there you go. And Shelly was telling me if you have healing in an area that sometimes you have authority over that for someone else. So if anyone needs healing from restless legs or even a restless mind, because God told me to quiet my mind, and dadgummit, it worked. Um, so I'd love to pray with you. Thanks. All right. So let's get, you can turn the lights off for us. Whoa. Um, does anybody uh, that's here have any words of knowledge about any particular condition that uh, we should be praying for? Okay. Well, if I could have a few people who are on our prayer team to come up, be available. Uh, this is the time that we just we want to um, I've renamed this time there is more <laughs> because there is more in God than, than simply what we uh, what we read in scripture and so if you're interested in the more the more can be any number of things the more can be healing the more can be prayer for particular circumstances or issues in your life something that you're going through um, the more can just be, you know, I, I just I want, I want to hear from God. We're, we want to pray for those things. We want to we press into those things, right? And so this is the time to do that. So I'm just going to pray a blessing over us. Um, if you need to leave, that's fine. You can, but I would strongly encourage you not to. <laughs> Um, to, to hang around a little bit, to see what God might say to you, what he might want you to do. God doesn't need us up here praying for you to touch you, right? Right where you're sitting is fine. That can happen too. But if you feel like you want to join with somebody uh, to bring that concern or issue before them, then uh, we definitely want to invite you to do that. So Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that you are still in the miracle business. 
Father, help us. As much as we hear that, there is a part of us that doesn't want to believe it. And so give us the strength to fight against that doubt, that age of enlightenment way of looking at things that are supernatural, of things that we can't explain. Father, increase our faith where it is weak. Increase our trust in you and in what you are capable of. Lord, I pray a blessing over all those who are gathered here today. Father, we ask you to bless them that they might go out and be a blessing to someone else. Bring people into their path as they walk through this week that they are meant to interact with on your behalf. Whether that's praying for healing or simply talking about Jesus, give them the boldness to do that. Give them the boldness to ask a question that contains just five words. Can I pray for you? That's it. Can I pray for you? So I thank you for all of these, uh, these dear people that are part of this church family. I just pray again that you bless them, touch them. Guide and direct them until we have the chance to be uh, together again next week. In all things, we give you all of the glory and the thanks and the praise. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.